You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee and with me again, yet again, is Paul Doroshenko. Hello. Hi. Can I talk about driving? And the law. Driving law. And how driving intersects with the law. And today I thought I would spring on you how driving and the law intersect when it comes to legal ethics. Okay, what do you want? <laughs> Go ahead You're and spring me on me. You're giving a look because you know what I'm about to say. Well, I you thought were... that was my highest grade in yeah. university was uh, was the ethics class. It was the ethics class. And That's now... ha- half the reason I became a criminal defense lawyer. Well, and now as a result of a car <clears throat> air freshener, people are raising questions about legal ethics and marketing. Okay, so what happened was this. Um, of course, we um, we own a marketing company. Brazen Bull is uh, owned by Kyla and myself, and that uh, there's a long history there. But um, in the beginning, at the beginning of the year, we were thinking of things that we could send to our clients. We have sent thank you cards to our clients. We've sent a number of other things to our clients over the years, and we thought, well, you know what? What could we send them that would give them our phone number handy in case they had. Uh, a problem and and we thought fridge magnets well those things just stay on the fridge home tattoo guns <laughs> yeah. a lot of hep c transmission concerns yeah there was lots of i mean we thought about yeah, we thought through the, we thought <laughs> we thought we thought i mean you don't want to send people i know i have a like some branded umbrellas that have been given to me and that's lovely that they want to protect me from the rain but our whole goal is to keep people you know succeeding in their, in their yeah so they can keep driving and and uh, doing our best to ensure that they get justice if they've got a driving case. So we decided to uh, order some air fresheners in the summertime that have our logo on it, our website address, and our toll-free number. And um, we ordered them. We've been giving them out to uh, to people we know in the justice community and our friends uh, for a long time. And, and we clients. decided And clients, yeah. And we decided to, um, to mail them to some clients along with a letter to explain a couple of things. And uh, one was to explain the change that's coming December 18th, because as of December 18th, the police will no longer need either an odor of liquor on your breath or an admission of consumption to compel you to provide a sample into a roadside approved screening device for alcohol. So then doesn't the air freshener kind of not do anything? No, it does, yeah, and that's the thing. It doesn't do anything for those people anymore because the police no longer need that suspicion. And it was a long-time joke that uh, we would hear from time to time from police officers. They would see people with 16 pine trees in their car, <laughs> and that that in itself might provide a reasonable suspicion that they had alcohol in their body. But Or that they were transporting large quantities of smelly, leafy, green substances. Yeah, and maybe cannabis legalization has got rid of the, um, of the uh, demand for those air fresh. But we thought about it and thought, you know what, Um, this is a good opportunity for people to turn their mind to the fact that the police no longer need that that suspicion about alcohol in the body. And the other thing that we thought was we have an ongoing problem now with people being able to contact a lawyer when they are in custody. 
when you have been detained and you're taken back to a detachment and you're being investigated for impaired driving, you have an opportunity at that point to contact a lawyer. And very often people will express the you know desire, yeah, I want to call a lawyer. And we noticed now that the police almost immediately, every time, put people straight onto legal aid. You have a right to counsel of choice. You should be able to determine who your lawyer is going to be, and people are put directly to legal aid. And there's a reason behind that. And the reason behind that is that the phone book doesn't exist anymore. The phone book exists, just nobody's paying any money to be in it. Well, yeah, I know. Years ago, we used to have a two-page ad when I was working with another lawyer. We had a two-page ad in the phone book, and it used to drive me insane how much money we spent on that phone book ad. But the point was that they could give you the phone book and you could pick a lawyer and make some phone calls. And these days, everybody's just put straight to legal aid, which I think well, is a charter also, violation. Like we've had clients who are so mm-hmm. young <coughs> That's true. being stopped by, by police and, and so young, they're given the phone book and they don't know what to do with it. They're looking through it like, what the fuck is this thing? Yeah, that was pretty funny. And we have <laughs> we have had it a few times where people have been handed the phone book and they don't know what the phone book is. And I get it. You know, I get it. If it, I remember when I, cell phone. when I was like 12 years old looking at the phone book trying to figure out, you know, what it all meant. Um, gee, that's a you long time ago. It took you till 12 to figure out what the phone book meant? Maybe I was eight. I don't know. I'm just, look, this is, we're talking decades past. Okay, so the point here being that people get in uh, you know, in the back of a police cruiser and they don't know who they're going to call. They're at the back of the detachment. They don't know who they're going to call. So we thought, what do people have in their car that they're going to have accessible to them when they are stopped by the police? And you know, obviously, if you've got an air freshener there, you can grab it. Well, there you go. But I wanted to ask you about cannabis mm. because one of the things that you attached to the literature that went out with this was a suggestion that you could put it in your pocket and smell really nice when interacting with the police. Well, the reality is that we don't know what the police are going to use to form a suspicion that you've got a drug in your body. It's not likely that they are going to use the smell of burnt cannabis because you can have the smell of burnt cannabis on your clothes weeks after. It can be you know, embedded in the fabric of your of your car. Uh, And the police know that. So I don't know what they're going to use, but I don't think an air freshener is ever going to be effective to mask any smell of cannabis. So, Well, like you said, you know, there's often these people that are driving around with, you know, 17 air fresheners in their car. And and so that never worked to keep the police from smelling the cannabis. It's not like one air freshener is going to make all of the difference. But a lot of people are saying, Paul, that you're walking an ethical tightrope or that you're on the wrong side of an ethical gray area by doing this because it serves to obstruct a police investigation. I love that you're taking the devil's advocate I'm not taking I'm just suggesting to you that some people are saying Mm -hmm. that, which we know, and asking you for your response. This is a podcast about the intersection of driving and and the law. And you can ask me anything you like, and you can also ask me an ethical question. Uh, We are not, by any means, encouraging people to in any way violate the law. In fact, the accompanying material we sent out explained to people that as of December 19th, you better make sure that you provide a sample because the police no longer have to form a reasonable suspicion. Uh, and uh, we explained what about further. Cannabis? We explained further that the police can form a reasonable suspicion with cannabis, but there's no attempt to, you know, I can tell you 
methods of obstructing. I've seen people obstruct impaired driving investigations, sometimes successfully obstruct them, but they often end up with an obstruction charge. Um, so no, I mean, I, you know, the letter and the material that we sent out to people explain that you have to comply with a lawful demand and that's basically it. But I want people to have our phone number if they are back in custody and I want them to be able to, you know, locate us because the police are not putting them on the internet to let them locate a lawyer the way they used to with a phone book. It's interesting, though, that, like, there's not a lot of discussion, really public discussion, about legal ethics. And so it's interesting that it took a driving law advertisement and driving accessory to make this something that's apparently in the public interest. Well, the upsetting thing to me is that basically people are taking the view of explaining the law uh, is some sort of walking an ethical line or walking an ethical tightrope. Uh, you know, at any time that we've ever, the, 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 I, I have had other feedback where we're explaining our concerns with the law and people want to criticize us for it. And I usually chalk it up to uh, we're defense lawyers and, you know, a lot of people just hate defense lawyers. We're drunk driving lawyers. Maybe we're the most hated of defense lawyers. I don't know. Um, no, those are the ones who <clears throat> defend like like child rapists or things like that. Well, we don't do that, but I don't hate those people no. in any event. <laughs> I don't hate any defense lawyers. <laughs> but you're you're looking at me like maybe I should. I, I can't take. No, I can't take. The, I just I think we're not the worst. <clears throat> we're like second worst. Great. We're second worst. <laughs> we're second worst. Um, I would defend anybody if I was in the proper, you know, had the proper mindset and and proper skills to do it. I suppose, and okay. that's not. But I I want to war criminals. I want to follow up on this. What you're saying though about advising people and how people are instantly sort of reactionary to how uh, how we explain the law and give information about what the law says, because that raises a second driving law and ethics issue that I wanted to talk about tonight. And I preface this with a story from when I was in PLTC. And PLTC, for those of you who are listening who don't know, is like this course. It's that, a bar course in British Columbia. Well, they don't do bar courses in like the the states so but i want to explain course. it okay all right <laughs> cut me <clears> off well <laughs> i won't invite you back next like it's week your podcast yeah um it's a course it's a, about six weeks long and you get the, like a little bit of training in various areas of the law and one of the things that they train you about is uh ethics obviously but another thing they train you about is criminal law and you're in a classroom with like maybe 10 to 12 other aspiring lawyers who don't know the first thing about criminal law and haven't touched uh, a criminal case ever and probably never will. And so they played this video for us. And in the video, it's like Rick Peck um, and Who's someone a else. very famous criminal defense lawyer in Vancouver. Yes. And and someone else. And, and the the scenario that the lawyer is navigating is his client tells him something in the hallway. Oh, yeah, I totally stole that TV. Ha ha ha. And then um, about an hour before trial, he says that. And then right before they go in the courtroom, he says, actually, you know, I, I, uh, I didn't steal the TV. Uh, my friend gave it to me. And he's perplexed because now he doesn't know whether his client should testify and he's so concerned what's his ethical duty he thinks his client is lying to him and all of the 
non-criminal law people in the room are stymied by this. They make the same horrified face that uh, Richard Peck very brilliantly makes in the video. Meanwhile, me and the two other people in the room who did criminal law were like, what? I don't, I don't see the concern. No, <laughs> I know. It's a, it's funny because you, as a criminal defense lawyer, you come at it with a very different mindset. We had a, a similar thing. But anyway, you should probably finish the end of the story. My only yes. ethical concern with that video was the, the, the quality of the acting. <laughs> um, so is it one of the things that you're entitled to do as a lawyer um, is – take your client's most recent story, whatever they're telling you. You have an ethical obligation to put your client's version of events, even if it's changed and you don't know what's true because you weren't there. Unless you do know it's not true, of course. Unless you have, you know, proof that it's not true. Um, but another ethical thing that lawyers, criminal lawyers deal with that a lot of other lawyers don't is this sort of gray area of having to explain to people what the consequences of certain courses of action are without advocating that they follow them so that they know when they make a decision what the potential outcome of that decision is. And why does that connect to driving law? I know this is really long-winded, but why does that connect to driving law? Because Bill C-46 and the changes that are coming December 18th reopen a really nuanced ethical issue that lawyers faced advising clients who were in custody for impaired driving offenses. You mentioned this to me a few weeks ago, and I was surprised that you you you, you came with this. So this is the, the scenario that we used to have. It used to be that you could not be charged with a, an offense that we now have in the criminal code, which is essentially refusing to provide a breath sample in circumstances where you know that there was death or bodily harm caused to someone as a result of a collision. Um, and you were basically at fault at the collision. And prior to that change, which I think was in, uh, in the, yeah, I think that was in the C, uh, two changes from, uh, July 1st, 2008. If you were a lawyer and you got a phone call from a client and he was in custody and, and wondering whether or not he should provide a, a breath sample and, and he you, killed someone and he killed someone or, you know, you knew that there was li- a significant likelihood of bodily harm. You would spend quite some time on the phone explaining to the person, okay, you're required by law to provide a sample and these are the circumstances. And if you don't provide a sample, it is a criminal offense. However, uh, at the same time, you also don't provide the evidence that they could use to prove impairment or that you're over 80 milligrams. And your consequences are different if you refuse than if you Mm. provide the sample. And so you'd explain the consequences and then the person would go off and make whatever decision they made informed of the law. Yeah, and that's the way you did it. And then after C2 came out, it, it, the, the intention there was to try and they basically created, uh, an offense of refusing to provide a sample in circumstances where you knew that somebody was hurt or killed. Uh, and because it's a separate act later on. And, uh, you know, arguably you could understand why they created that. The upsetting thing for me is that they create these changes in the law on the basis of probably one case that happened in the country and that the police, you know, have a bee in their bonnet about. But now uh, circumstances have changed. Kyla, explain it. So now when December 18th hits, depending on what your blood alcohol level was or if you have a combination of drugs, uh, THC specifically, and alcohol in your body, you face escalating degrees of punishment. The higher your blood alcohol level, the higher the potential exposure to consequences. But that poses this huge ethical dilemma for lawyers, because what do you tell your client? 
Um, you Do you inform them that if your BAC is between this and this, the penalty will be this? And if it's higher, then the penalty will be this? And are you going to, you know, spend some time discussing with them on the phone their drinking pattern and, and try and figure out where they'd lie to inform them of what they're likely facing? And then, you know, the consequences for refusal aren't changing. So you're still facing a lower consequence if you refuse, if you've had a lot to drink and you think you're significantly over the limit, the consequence for refusal is lower than perhaps providing a sample would be. So we're back in that situation that we had before to some extent, to a different... To a lesser different, and different extent. Lesser, I don't know, lesser, but I mean, different. You, your penalties are, you know, But are we fines. are we crossing an ethical line by talking about this? I mean, really, it's the same as the air freshener, Kyla. How are we? The, of course we're not. No. I mean, the point is <laughs> nobody's sitting here contemplating doing it. Oh, I think I'll I go think out I'll and go get. Out, I'll get to 220 yeah, yeah. and then I'll refuse. Yeah, and I'll go <laughs> cause an accident that really hurts somebody. And then I heard the podcast that Kyla Lee had. And then I'll phone the lawyer and let them explain to me for a long time and see whether or not the explanation is correct. And then well, even, maybe I'll refuse. Well, even then they're creating different categories of offenses for bodily harm um, where it can be a summary or a hybrid offense which is actually interesting that you brought that up because that was another thing I wanted to talk to you about how does that change sentencing for cases already in the system I mean we're sort of dealing with this we've got a couple serious files coming up over the next few months in the next year and people are charged with impaired driving causing bodily harm Right now, all of the charges are by indictment only, and so, you know, naturally considered to be more serious. But after December 18th, the Crown can elect summary or indictment on a bodily harm file, so they can choose to proceed summarily, and that will impact the range of sentence available to the individual. We're going to have to obviously rework the entire concept of sentencing in these types of cases, but, you know, you get the guy who breaks a wrist versus the guy who's paralyzed. And naturally, one is far more serious than the other. They're both impaired driving, causing bodily harm. But now the Crown proceeds differently. And that, upon conviction, if there's a conviction, has a different consequence to what sentences are available and what sentences the court is going to consider and likely to impose. And if that's the case, then... How do you separate all of the cases where people were only able to be charged by indictment prior to C-46 and are convicted after when the Crown doesn't have the opportunity to make an election? What sentencing range is available? That is a great question, Kyla, and I would have to sit and think through that one because I, I my only framework for thinking that through is back to Bill C-2 and dealing with retrospective application of the end of evidence to the contrary. But retrospective application, that had to do with eliminating effectively a defense and then affecting the procedural rights of an accused at trial. This is a charter protected right. You have under the charter the right to the benefit of the lowest punishment available from the time that you were, the, the offense was committed to the time that you were sentenced. But this is a discretionary thing done by the Crown. They're choosing, the Crown choosing to proceed Summarily but the Crown or couldn't by indictment. exercise that discretion 
earlier. It couldn't exercise discretion to proceed summarily or by indictment prior to December 18th. So it affects the procedural rights of an accused at trial. It affects the rights of an accused on sentence. Uh, it confers a greater benefit in circumstances where the Crown could elect to proceed summarily. And yet there's no mechanism to allow them to retroactively decide to proceed summarily on an offense that wasn't punishable on summary conviction at the time. So how do you do it? You've conducted your preliminary hearing and your Supreme Court trial is starting uh, January 15th. And you think you're going to make an application to court to compel the Crown to think about whether or not they would proceed summarily? But I don't think they can proceed summarily because the Crown can't change how they elected because that election wasn't available at the time of the offense. It's only the sentencing range that has changed. So you just think that the charter kicks in and the lighter of the sentences... I don't know. This is something the courts are going to have to sort out. Well, there you go. We're deep in the law on that one. We should probably, uh, if you told me we were going to discuss that, maybe I would have researched it and had some flashcards or notes here for myself. Well, what's your instinct? Um, It's funny. I don't really have an instinct with that one. I I seem, you know, I kind of think because it's the discretion of the crown that the hands are tied. And I don't, you know... I, I, I don't have a good answer for you because it's not something where the, the court can step in and um, and replace that crown discretion. Can Are there cases, let me ask you this, are there cases where crown elects to proceed indictably where you can challenge that discretion? I'm sure there are. It has to be open to challenge. It's not something I've ever turned my mind to. Well. Never, never had to face it. I mean, you've got to remember like 90... Ninety percent of all impaired driving cases are preceded summarily, and so I'm not ninety, almost a hundred, unless no, there's death no. or bodily harm. I guess of cases that I handle, I mean, it's only ten percent, maybe, of cases that I handle where I've got. Uh, and, and I mean, I don't just do impaired driving cases; I've done lots of drug cases over the years, so it's not. But it, uh, for me, I'm, I'm a summary court. I'm a summary proceeding guy. I'm a provincial court. You know, <laughs> I'm a provincial court dude. You like it where it's nice and friendly, and the lighting seems warmer. <laughs> No, I mean, it's... A, it, Have you it, ever noticed that? The lighting in the provincial courtrooms is just warmer. It's like a cozy place. Like, you, you expect to turn around and see a roaring fire and a bearskin rug. Oh, come on. <laughs> that's, just your, that's just the way you feel. I mean, it depends on the courthouse. I find... Um, I, have a, I have a lot of time to imagine things sometimes, during trials, no, apparently. I mean, you do a lot more judicial reviews, and I come along for some of them. And, and one of the things that always surprises me is how informal the conversation can be but that's just, in superior I, court. I think that's just me because I see other lawyers in Supreme Court and they aren't like that. Well, I mean, I, I've had the experience in both. I've had some very formally feeling provincial court experiences where I'm uncomfortable because it feels too formal. Um, and then there's those times that there's those judges who, who apply this really formal formula to their courtroom and uh, I feel very comfortable in those courtrooms with some of them because I know that I'm you know getting a I know the judge and I know that I'm I'm getting a fair getting a fair hearing? getting a fair hearing and I you know you, if you don't know the judge or you're not comfortable with that courtroom sometimes you don't walk in there with that uh feeling in your in your spine um in your in your nerve nervous system um but it is a different feel in those two different courthouses. But I, I just prefer provincial court because I deal with those people more often. Uh, I mean, the, the prosecutors and, uh, you know, I, I know the location and that, that's my place. 
Right. And you don't have to wear the robes and the funny little tabs. Yeah, and I always end up running, backing my chair up over my robe. And that never happens in provincial court because I'm not wearing a robe. (laughs) You're just backing your chair up over your briefcase and your papers that have spilled on the floor. I don't know. Yeah. Well, anyway, I prefer provincial court, except in Vancouver, where I've had, you know, incidents with bed bugs and a bad pneumonia and various other things over the years, which um, stresses me out when I go in there. Okay. So you have no answer to the to the big legal question I had for this podcast. No, I don't. And I kind of wish that you, you know, I, I guess you mentioned it to me a little while ago and I've been trying to wrap my head around it, but you always come up with these things that I don't, wouldn't think of. So I'm impressed with your capacity to come up with them i don't know that i will ever face this issue so i'm i'm not gonna think about it because i don't have to (laughs) i don't have to face it so let me ask you the third thing about c46 you you will find a case to do it though i know it well no i won't because then i'd have to lose a case involving bodily Mm. harm and i don't want to lose that's true um no and that's on and that is infrequent that you lose a case involving bodily harm. It's never happened. Yeah. Not no. not an impaired causing bodily harm. Good for you. Thank you. I can't say I can't say that I have that same uh Yeah, but you've got, you know, 15 years on me or something. 11. I, you know, it depends on the facts that you get in the case. Sometimes the person's guilty and they're going to be found guilty. Sometimes you have a defense. You seem to find more defenses than I find. I, so, I give you that. Third thing about C46 and these changes that are coming that I wanted to talk to you about um, was about changes in procedure and your ability to challenge the reliability of the results. And it intersects quite interestingly with today's today's Thursday. So it came out today. Tomorrow's Friday podcast will be Friday. Um, today's judgment from the Supreme Court of Canada in Regina and Sir Langlois. Now, this is something you're passionate about. Yeah, I'm really passionate about it because I have all of these breath testing instruments and equipment and I've had problems with them. And I've, you know, discovered problems over the years and found all sorts of malfunctions. And, you know, I'm I'm still angry about St. Angela Maru. And I, I, I really concerns me that people can be punished on the basis of um, these instruments that are fallible, that are designed to look like they're always functioning properly, but that are, are as fallible as any other electromechanical mechanical device. Right. But now we're not going to be able to even ask for records. And the Supreme Court of Canada today narrowed even further what types of defenses, well, not what types of defenses, but how you can raise defenses in relation to the improper operation or maintenance of the instrument. I'm I'm sort of coming to the view that the Supreme Court of Canada is just going to say, we don't really care about whether or not the device is malfunctioning, and we don't really care whether or not the tests are not taken properly. We don't really care whether or not the readings are accurate. We just think that if Parliament has passed this legislation that says your blood alcohol concentration is in excess of 80 milligrams and 100 milliliters and whatever it says on that machine sort of suggests that, we'll go along with it. And we don't mind if it's a wrongful conviction or something like that because it's not that big of a deal. 
I'm not as cynical as you, but I am cynical enough that I think that it's only a matter of time before the government is so brazen as to try to pass legislation that just says Trump drivers are guilty. Well, that's basically I I feel that that's what Bill C2 said. And I expected that the Supreme Court of Canada was going to do a... You became a better lawyer after that. I only ran evidence to the contrary twice. But you, it forced you, though, to think about your cases differently because they took that card out of your deck. That's true. I thought about a lot of things differently. And I was thinking recently about how I've thought differently about uh, breath testing period since the Civia decision, you know, sort of recategorize things for me in my brain. But I, I, I still just worry about the, you know, we had the catch-all that protected innocent people from being convicted. And instead of, you know, being focused on that, the government has been perpetually focused on making sure that uh, everybody's convicted and it doesn't really matter if the innocent people are convicted because maybe it's not so bad if they are. And it's sort of the suggestion that, oh, you had something to drink, so therefore that's fine, you're guilty. Well, today in Sierlanglois, the Supreme Court of Canada dealt with a case involving a an allegation that the observation period was not conducted properly. So for background, um, when breast samples are taken, there's supposed to be a continuous face-to-face and uninterrupted 15-minute observation period prior to the first sample and between the two samples. And the reason for this is that the police need to rule out burping, belching, vomiting, regurgitation, or anything taken by mouth in those 15 minutes, because those things could contribute to or cause residual mouth alcohol, which could then lead to unreliable readings. And up until today, the argument has typically been, at least in British Columbia and Alberta, it was not so successful. In Quebec, it was clearly not so successful, that if those observation periods weren't conducted or they weren't conducted properly, that the breath sample readings would be discounted on the basis of the improper procedure. Supreme Court of Canada said today that Yes, you can discount readings on the basis of improper procedure, but it can't be that the cause uh, that the improper procedure would cause unreliable readings in a purely theoretical or merely speculative way. And and the problem with that is we're talking about the absence of evidence and the absence of following proper procedure. So what do we have with breath testing? We have procedure. We have proper procedure to make sure that the samples that are obtained are reliable samples. The way that you do it, your number one, the number one biggest threat to reliable breath testing is alcohol in the mouth. And whether it comes from a recent drink, which doesn't happen when you're at the detachment, or it comes from any regurgitation from your stomach, that is the like number I had a case one. Where it did happen at the detachment. Drinking, you know, maybe, <laughs> but that, but that is the number one threat. We've known it since 1929. That's the first published study that talks about it. And so the police are supposed to watch you. And the reason they're supposed to watch you is they realized a long time ago that you can burp and not even know that you burped. Yeah, you can burp and not know that you burped, but you also you can burp silently. If you listen to the podcast, you might never hear. Paul Doroshenko burping, but Paul, you have a condition. I have a condition. I've got a, I've got a gastroesophageal reflux disorder. I've got the sphincter valve on the top of my stomach is defective and I am burping all the time. And it's very hard for me to get a reliable sample because I've got all of these instruments. I've tested myself all these times. 
The only way that I'm ever comfortable is if I rinse with water, drink some water, and then blow. And that's the way that I can ensure that I have no mouth alcohol. And whenever I watch you test yourself after you've been drinking, you always do two or three samples a couple minutes apart to make sure you're getting agreement. Yeah, and lots of times I can move it up by 10 or 20 milligrams uh, or much higher if I've just burped. Mm -hmm. So I I see it happening. It's like a regular occurrence. Now, I happen to have this condition, which we know many British Columbians happen to have. And how many? And how do you know? (laughs) So this has been a concern of ours because this is the one uh, thing that the immediate roadside prohibition scheme never addressed. And that was um, whether or not you burped and that's contaminated a sample. And we thought when the law came out, this is hugely risky. There's got to be lots of people who have acid reflux. If you go to the grocery store, the the pharmacy and walk down the aisle that deals with stomach things, uh, there's all this different medication. And I'm a person who suffers from it. And there's nothing that I can do about it except medicate and and stop drinking alcohol and stop drinking coffee. And, you know, I would rather... Good Lord. (laughs) I know it's impossible. Um, The um, So this was a concern. So I, I finally dawned on us that we should do what I think we should have done years ago when we were challenging the IRP scheme in the constitutional context. And that was we hired a survey company, we hired Research Co. Uh, and we said, look, just here's our question. Can you come back with something and let us know how prevalent this is in the BC population? And, and we would do it differently now. Uh, you know, I've thought about how the question should be different, but what we determined was the research came back. Um, this was done with a, a, a survey of 800 British Columbians and it was, you know, properly conducted in accordance with standard, um, you know, research. It was Mario Canseco's company. Yeah. He's respected guy and does a good job and, uh, came back and 11% of British Columbians have basically chronic acid reflux and another 27% have it frequently. Um, and, um, you know, or occasionally enough that it's, I can't, don't have the study in front of me, Yeah, but it's, it's 38% uh, significant, total. significant number of people are suffering this. Now here's the mistake that we made or the thing that I would do differently now. I think it was still worthwhile to do it that way. Mm-hmm. But what I would like to know is how many people who drink alcohol suffer it because I think the numbers are a lot higher because it's one of the things that triggers, triggers it, that triggers it is the consumption of alcohol. Is it but in any acidic? event of alcohol or I don't know I don't know what it is in alcohol and I don't know what it is in coffee and I know you know when I was dealing with my doctor when they put that scope down my throat um, you know he said these are the things that are recognized as triggers but he didn't tell me why, why? and it is interesting because I, you know I drink tea instead of coffee a lot of the time and it certainly doesn't have the same effect as coffee and I don't know why it is that coffee does that interesting but what do you say then to the people, the detractors of mouth alcohol's impact on a breath test? What do you say to those who say, well, there's safeguards built into the instrument. It can detect mouth alcohol. Well, the, the roadside breath testers cannot. Yeah, and that was our concern that. with that. But when you get back to this case from the Supreme Court of Canada, um, no, they can't. And uh, you, you're playing devil's advocate because you know the answer. Kyla provided a sample into the most sophisticated uh, – evidentiary breath tester we have in this country, the Datamaster DMT, which is produced by Intoximeters of St. Louis, Missouri. And it has uh, an infrared chamber and a fuel cell 
And as we have with the uh, Intox ECIR2, but it's kind of the crappy one in the Intox ECIR2. It's cool. You can see the graph of what your sample was over time. On the DMT. Yeah. So Kyla blew into the DMT with no alcohol in her body just after swishing a little bit of vodka in her mouth. And she blew two samples back to back, each one pure mouth alcohol. The instrument did not detect that it was mouth alcohol. They, in both cases, it said these are good samples. Yep. And so Kyla had no alcohol in her body. Now in Canada, she's guilty. But, um, yeah, in Canada, <laughs> I'm guilty. And uh, the improper observation period wouldn't have done anything to affect that. You don't need the observation period at all. Just skip over it. Yeah. So very upsetting that we've seen it. We know it. And it's worse with the other instruments. The... Uh, but also, like, think about when it comes time for your trial. Like, if it is the case, and the Supreme Court of Canada didn't go so far to say that this was the case, but if it, in fact, they explicitly said this isn't the case, but then didn't give a guideline for how it wouldn't be. Anyway, how can you remember by the time you get to your trial, you know, six or eight or ten months later, whether you were burping? Do you remember the last time you burped? I don't remember the last time I burped. It was probably sometime today. I'm sure I burped since we started the podcast, which is well, why it came to your mind. But I don't, I don't remember. I, yeah, no, I, that's the that's the ridiculous thing is they're setting up the impossible hurdle. Mm -hmm. The impossible hurdles are designed, uh, in the end, in my view, to to lead to innocent people being convicted. And I, I'm I, I'm I'm not confident in this process no. at, at all. And it's so it's upsetting for me. But maybe I know too much. So let me ask you, oh, uh, let me ask you about this roadside breath testing, because you've said, as, as you and I both know, the roadside breath testers do not have a mechanism to detect residual mouth alcohol. They'll just take the sample, you can blow straight mouth alcohol into it, and it thinks it's jolly good and gives you a nice high reading. It doesn't give you a reading, it just tells you fail. Well, ours so, give a reading. Ours in the office give a reading, yes. The... Elimination of the reasonable suspicion standard is going to increase the number of false fail readings because police will no longer need to question drivers about alcohol consumption in order to get grounds to ask them to vote. How many times do you see a police officer who's interacting with somebody who says, yes, I relied on his admission of consumption to form my suspicion all the fucking time? Yes. What's your point? Now they're not going to ask that question. They're not going to need to. So you're going to get people pulling out of the parking lot of a bar, blow, and they're going to be producing falsely high readings. Well, the only two procedural protections we have are the police officer asking you when you finished your last drink, which is if it's more than 15 minutes, it's mostly, you know, probably you've, you've had that alcohol that was in your mouth has dissipated. Um, but they don't ask you when you last burped. But you're saying that they're not going to ask you when you had your last drink. I think they're still going to ask that because they... I don't think so. Nine, nine times out of ten in the cases I have, the police don't ask that for the purposes of ruling out residual mouth alcohol. They ask it for the purpose of building their grounds. That's true. Maybe. I, I No, I can see that. But I, I, I think that, you know, one of the things that I see from time to time is police officers asking about the last drink after the person has blown a fail. Well, that's pretty lazy. Well, it's not uncommon, at least, no. to see it in that, like in the narrative, that that's where it, it comes out. Um, so, no, I mean, in BC, 
Uh, I suppose they still have to ask that, but it's not an issue of the lawfulness of the sample anymore. It's the reliability of the sample. But the sample but is already 50% impugned, in my view, because of the lack of an observation period. Well, maybe in BC, you'd be able to sort that out because we have the immediate roadside prohibition scheme and you can put in your evidence that you had something more recently. And if they didn't ask you, you're probably more likely to be believed because there's no contrary evidence. Um, and maybe we'll see a higher, a higher number of IRPs revoked on the basis of unreliable results. But for those facing criminal charges, that doesn't change anything. For people facing criminal charges, now you provide the sample, the sample's unreliable due to mouth alcohol, you can't turn around at your trial and argue that the result was unreliable for reasons unknown to and unknowable by the officer, because the only way you can challenge the reliability of an ASD result to any meaningful effect at a trial is to try to undermine the officer's grounds to rely on the result, which then invalidates the arrest or detention that follows and the breath demand and the subsequent taking of samples. But so what? It's an ASD so test. So what? There are going to be wrongful detentions, wrongful searches. People are going to be hauled back to the police station. And I guarantee you, Paul, we will see cases where people are brought back to the police station, they're made to blow into the approved instrument there, the samples come back with a low BAC or not over the limit, no alcohol at all, and then the police go, well, there's something wrong with him. So then they do the DRE. And then those people end up with a drug charge. Well, that could be. We'll see whether or not that happens. But so what? Maybe they're maybe they're maybe so they're what? popped up on drugs, Kyla. I mean, I'm sorry. I just uh, you know this are you, is the, are you being the devil's this, advocate now? This is the this is the new world we live in. You know, they, you know, maybe they're just guilty, and that's good enough in Canada. I, for, I, I mean, for a for a criminal conviction for impaired driving. I just think, you know, for a second, just forget this notion of reasonable suspicion and constitutional validity and just think about it from a really practical, whether you're going to get a fair test perspective. And you're not. I see in many cases procedure that is not proper to take a fair test. I'm of the view that it's not a fair test. The Supreme Court of Canada is of the view that yeah, it's fine. So I, you know, I have to accept that's the state of the law. Okay. Well, I'm going to have to change my mind to uh, <laughs> to incorporate the state of the law. I like to end our podcast on a little bit more of a positive note. We were going to talk about naming and shaming. I forgot. And I promised to be the devil's advocate with that one. Okay, fine. We'll we'll end on the naming and shaming. I was going to talk about new regulations for chains on the highway, but Naming and shaming. Naming and shaming. So now um, the York Regional Police are somewhere In around Ontario Toronto <laughs> are going to start um, publishing names of people who have been detained, investigated, and they're recommending charges for of impaired 08 or refusal on their website. Yes. And they are saying that they're only going to put it up there for a month. So they're just going to humiliate these people for a month and then they're going to take it down. Nothing on the internet is temporary. You can literally not put something on the internet and have it disappear forever. Have we not heard about the Streisand effect? 
No, what is a Streisand? What? Well, Barbara Streisand's house showed up on Google Earth, and she was really pissed off about it. So she tried to get Google to take it off. And all of her actions to try to get Google to remove it only drew more attention to the Google Earth shots of her house, which then drew more publicity to where she lived. It's called the Streisand effect. So basically, you just have to hide in your basement these days. Yeah, don't go on the internet. Don't touch the internet. The internet is a big, bad, scary place, but... In any event, um, so the question was, and it was put to us on various different news outlets over this week, whether or not um, you know we think this is wrong and why we think it's wrong. And um, It is wrong. First of all, you have these people who are entitled to the presumption of innocence. And there's no public interest in naming and shaming impaired drivers. This isn't like a murder where an entire community is affected or where there's a public safety issue with a person that you might need to know about because if you see them breaching their bail conditions, you should call the police or, or whatever the case may be. That's not that. It's people who are charged with an offense which has a very high rate of acquittals and which has, in my opinion, a high rate of wrongful convictions for many of the reasons we've just covered in this podcast. How can you possibly think that it's okay to publish their names and humiliate them, potentially cost them their jobs, on the basis of an unproven allegation? But, you know, if everybody's having their, them, you know, everybody's name is ending up on the internet, uh, linked to something that they supposedly did, do we not just become callous to it? Do we not just take these things with a grain of salt whenever we see them now? Do we not just, you know, no. when something comes up bad on the internet about you, you know, somebody says something nasty about me on the internet, you know, should I just shrug my shoulders because that's just the internet now and it's just the world of the internet? Look, think about when you're preparing for a trial and you've got witnesses that you want to cross-examine. Do you take with a grain of salt the bad things said about them on the internet, or do you gleefully print that out in anticipation of using it in court? I, gleef I, I, gleefully, <laughs> I gleefully print it out if I think that that's fair. Sometimes right. I don't think it's fair, so I don't use it. Yeah, I mean, it depends what it is. But, you know, the, the person sued for not uh, paying their Capital One MasterCard ever. I had that once. Yeah. That's a, you know, crime of dishonesty. I've had people who posted really stupid things on the internet that I printed out to use. I recall that case. That was just one. I've, there's been a number of them. But the um, I, I, back to naming and shaming, I mean, can't you just take the position that, look, there's so many people are being named that it's not even a shame anymore? Maybe it's a badge of honor for some. Uh, you're back on the bar stool the next night and there with your friends and oh, you and oh, your two oh, buddies. I made the news. Yeah, I made the I was on the on the York Regional Police's website. I'm finally um uh, anyway, I'm I'm not doing an effective job and being the devil's advocate. Okay. What about deterrence? It's not going to deter anybody. I'm sorry, but when I am drunk, I haven't been drunk in forever. But when I was drunk in the past, I certainly wasn't thinking about what people were going to write about me on the internet before I did something stupid. You don't go, hold my beer. Wait, what will the internet say tomorrow? You just go, hold my beer. That's true. I've never found that anybody is deterred by all of those separate different things that might happen to them later on. What I found with my clients is that they have been deterred by the fear of apprehension. Not what's mm -hmm. going to happen, because the the moment of apprehension creates the the 
that the fear of what's going to happen after apprehension that it's uncertain is actually the greatest fear because it's the fear of the unknown. So they think to themselves, you know, I'll make it home. And they think to themselves, oh, shit, there's going to be a roadblock. Okay, I'm not going to drive. But if they think, ah, there's no likelihood of me getting caught, I'm going to make it home. They don't think of that. If they think there's a roadblock and they think they're going to be stopped, it's just the fear of apprehension. That is the number one thing. And, you know, I know there's everybody, well, the social attitudes have changed and everything. Of course, social attitudes have changed. But do you think the person who's had, you know, 10 drinks is sitting there thinking about the social attitudes? No, they're thinking about, am I going to get caught? Yeah, well, it's like this, you know, substance alcohol does something crazy to people and, I don't know, lowers their inhibitions. How about that? (laughs) Like deterrence is just not a concept that's applicable when it comes to impaired driving because of alcohol as a substance. So for now, better than 15 years, I have been saying that cars should have the technology in them to be able to suss out when a person has been drinking and maybe disable it, maybe do something. And I think, you know, I know there's problems with uh, alcohol interlock devices, but they've certainly improved a lot. Mm -hmm. And it always seemed to me that you could start with the low-hanging fruit like school buses, um, and make sure that every school bus has an interlock. Because I know when I was a kid, the bus driver was drinking. <laughs> well, it's true. No, I'm and, laughing because I remember my bus driver. Yeah. And so start with school bus drivers and then go to maybe semi-trailer trucks uh, to be able to assess whether or not that person's drinking. Those are huge vehicles on the road sure. that are a big threat. Big and then, public safety concern. Sure. And, and then once the trucking industry would support it overall. Sure. And once you've got, you know, a... a um, the trucking industry would support that. And once you've got people accustomed to it, then you could start doing it in pickup trucks and legislate it. And 20 years from now, you could eliminate drunk driving. Yeah. Why wasn't that in the, um, you know, climate change plan along with eliminating gas-powered vehicles? Well, why have they not made it so every school bus can assess the sobriety of the driver? Seems to be reasonable. And it's not like you're going to pick up, you know, ambient alcohol from the passengers they're all children yes so i i i still think this is the low-hanging fruit and this is where we start well there you go legislators if you're listening paul doroshenko has the answer to solving drunk driving without unnecessarily unjustly unfairly and unconstitutionally punishing people well and mothers against drunk driving may hate me but they should probably like me for that one. And that's one they should probably pick up on because my goodness, why haven't they advocated for that? You know, maybe it doesn't generate revenue, but advocate for school bus drivers to be school buses to keep school bus drivers from driving when they've been drinking. Well, there you go. That's a good suggestion. We're out of time. So if you want to get in touch with Paul to talk about his brilliant idea to deter drunk driving in a logical way, or you want to get in touch with me to explain the answer to the question Paul couldn't answer about summary and indictable and the change in the law or your thoughts on it, you can reach us at 604-685-8889 and you can find us online, even though the internet is a scary place at vancouvercriminallaw.com. Tune in next week for another episode of Driving Law.